my uh, very distinct pleasure and privilege to introduce to you our tonight's guest, Faryar Jawahari. Uh, I think I have known Faryar for more than 40 years. I was then uh, a man of some age. She was just a baby, of course. Uh, and uh, over the course of the 40 years, uh, I have seen the many remarkable sides of this lady. She has never ceased to surprise me by her brilliance, by her dedication, by her uh, inventiveness, and by her resilience. Uh, she is clearly, uh, in terms of exhibits on Iran's gardens, uh, she is by far the most acclaimed uh, curator uh, that we've had. The most important exhibit on gardens inside Iran was curated by her, where she brought 30 different artists to work with her. And she, because of who she is, has the ability to bring everyone, from Fiorostami and Mehjui to uh, La Shahi when she was alive, and everyone else. Uh, she's also one of Iran's top architects. I don't say this by Tarof. I don't say this by hyperbole. She was recognized as one of the top architects of Iran. She's been repeatedly acclaimed in that capacity. And her reputation as an architect and as an art historian is international, evident in the fact that she was one of the juries for the Ava Khan Award in Architecture, which is easily, I think, one of the maybe the most prestigious <laughs> architectural award. Uh, she runs a very successful architectural firm. And today she was saying that, oh no, it's not that successful. I only have 10 people working for me. Uh, and I said, well, by, in my book, that's a very, very successful architectural film. Uh, she worked on 10 films with Darius Mertini, 10 of the best films of Darius Mertini. She was a set uh, designer and uh, an aesthetic, I think, advisor on everything that Mertini did in that period. She's also uh, succeeded in combining, in a remarkable way, professional accomplishments at the global level uh, and her uh, private life. She is a remarkably dedicated mother. She is a truly remarkably dedicated sister. I have very, seen very few people in my life who have been as dedicated to their sister as she is. She was a remarkably good wife to a man who was my friend but was stupid enough not to appreciate her value. Uh, and she is also a remarkable friend. Uh, to give you a sense of uh, her character, a few years ago I was working on a biographical sketch of uh, Abbas Amana, uh, Hussein Amana, in fact, who's going to be here next quarter. And I needed to ask her some questions about Shahya. Uh, and I asked her a few questions. I had her kindly read what I had written about Amana. She corrected the mistakes that I had. And then after a few months, she wrote what is still the most definitive account of the building of Shahyat. You should go online and see the, uh, read the essay. It is a remarkable, detailed, historical, architectural essay. So it gives me personal and uh, professional pleasure to invite Fabiola Jaffa. Tonight I'm going to talk about two uh, archetypal expressions of our culture, the garden and the carpet. 
and uh, I hope it's not going to be boring you it's a pretty long presentation but uh, uh, I think at least for us Iranians uh, there are some details because we all think that we know everything about our carpets and gardens but I think uh, I'm going to take you through a small journey of uh, our carpets. In April 2010, the Burrell Collection Museum in Glasgow decided to exhibit one of its collection pieces, the Wagner carpet, after some 20 years. Uh, usually all textiles and carpets are kept away from the light in storage and exhibited only for periods of three up to six months in a row, after which time they go back to sleep in storage, otherwise, you know, they get too damaged by the light. In uh, the case of the Wagner carpet, its huge size is also prohibitive. And so the Barrel Collection Museum in Glasgow didn't have an adequate space for exhibit, exhibiting it. And um, getting it out after such a long time was a real occasion for them. So they decided to have a conference on the theme of Persian carpets and Persian gardens. And uh, they invited Professor Robert Hillebrand, Penelope Hophaus, who had written the most recent book on Persian Gardens, uh, Moya Carey from the VNA, a few other scholars, and myself. So the lecture I'm presenting to you now was first made in April 2010. Then I had the occasion of you know, presenting this lecture several times in Iran, uh, in English and in Farsi. The Vina carpet dates from the end of the 16th century or early 17th century. It was weaved in Kerman. It is five and a half meters by four and a half, which means it's a bit squarish. And it was bought by an Austrian by the name of Mr. Wagner in Kerman, from which you know the name of the Wagner carpet comes from. And Mr. Beryl acquired it in the early 20th century and being Scottish, he, he got it almost for free. <laughs> In Persian, the word farsh uh, comes from the Zoroastrian word farash, which appears in the Avesta. And farash means renewal. The verb farsh kardan is also derived from this word and means to cover a surface. But the word farsh to me also seems to have the same root as the Latin fresco, from which derive the French frais and fresh, and the English, of course, fresh. Fresh is very close to farsh. And all these words, you know, in all these words, there is a connotation of coolness, newness, and also a certain degree of joyfulness. The carpet we're looking at now is one of my favorites. It's a Qashqai rug woven in Neiris in the 19th century. It's a tribal rug and the golden color of the background 
refers to a golden era of life in the tribe because tribal rocks are always woven based on the experiences of daily life of the tribe. For instance, if the tribe is in a mourning period, the women who usually weave the rugs would use a lot of black wool in the background of the carpet. If it's a wedding period, they would use a lot of pink and red. And I think this was very beautifully de depicted in Mahmal Boff's film, Gabbe. Arthur Upham Pope says that the theme of all Persian carpets is the Persian garden. But I would say that nine, maybe 85, maybe 90% of them are indeed referring to the Persian garden. And I would like to begin this brief history of garden carpets with the most famous one, the spring of Khosrow or Bahare Khosrow. Uh, Bahare Khosrow was woven with gold, silver, and silk threads and covered with thousands of precious stones. Khosrow Parviz, one of the last emperors of the Sassanid dynasty, had ordered this huge carpet, almost 300 square meters, 3,000 square feet, for the great hall of his, how do you say teaspoon in English? I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Of his palace in Tisfum, so that in winter he could gaze at this virtual garden. So four centuries later, historians like Tabari and Bellamy described this carpet in their works. And this is how we know that the water canals were depicted with crystals, the pathways with pearls, the trees were woven in gold and silver threads, and the flowers were represented with precious stones. The margins were all covered with emeralds. And uh, you know that when the Arabs uh, conquered Iran, they just tore this carpet into pieces and it was looted. It was you know, cut off into pieces, you know, small pieces. And so there is no virtual image of this carpet, unfortunately. But I have chosen a virtual reconstruction of the whole of the Tisfun Palace with a huge carpet to give you a sense of the scale of this very unusual carpet. So whether it is an abstract floral pattern like this Farahan carpet from the 17th century from our carpet museum in Tehran, or the depiction of real flowers, plants, and animals like this Tehran carpet dated 1901, it has, you know, the date is right there, Hezaru Sisadu Nuzda, Ramari, or whether it is the actual plan of a garden, like the Wagner gar carpet, we can see the close relationship which has always existed in our culture between gardens and carpets. In all cases, the Persian carpet either literally or symbolically refers to the Persian garden. Garden. The Wagner carpet is original because it does not represent a typical Chahar Bagh plan. It has an H-shaped plan with three axes. 
And um, I have been looking, you know, at the plants of all our gardens, trying to see if I can find something a little bit similar to this. And uh, I found two, actually. First, the southern part of the Farahabad garden, which was a Safavid garden on the southern skirts, outskirts of Esfahan, built by Shah Safi at the very end of the Safavid's reign, and which was totally destroyed during the Afghan invasion of Shah Mahmud in late 18th century. And the northern part of the Dolatabad garden in Yaz which is a Zandye garden, late 18th and early 19th century. So none of these two could have been a source of inspiration for the Kermani weaver who did the Wagner carpet. I, I have absolutely no idea where he got this H shape and you know the cross axis. It's just so imaginative. When a carpet shows the structure or the plan of a Persian carpet, it is usually a bird's eye view of the garden in one side. And the carpet is actually a two-dimensional image of the garden. But the Persian garden itself, because of its simple geometry, the main axis, the canals, the water basins, and certainly when we're in uh, uh, Persian gardens which are laid out on a piece of flat land, it also gives us the impression of looking at a surface because we get a sort of mental image of a two-dimensional plan of the whole garden when, when we enter it because it's so, you know, so simple, so clear. The geometry is just uh, not very complex. And for decades now, Western garden historians have referred to our garden designs as Chahar Bakh, or four-folded four garden plan. But in fact, Chahar Bakh is only a symbolic reference. Persian gardens don't just have two cross axes forming four quarters. They have one main axis and many, many cross axes. So when we say Chahar Bakh in Farsi, we're not literally talking about a four-folded garden. And here's an example of the most famous Chaharbach carpets, of which we have many around in Western museums. Uh, in the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, we have one in Berlin, one in Milan. And um, as you can see, it doesn't have four quarters, or what we call in Farsi, cart. It has many, many carts. The Persian garden was never meant to be seen from the sky, but mentally, every visitor sees it this way. In this aerial view of the Dolatabad garden in Yaz, we can really feel the velvety quality of the street, of the trees when we see them from the sky. And, uh, there really is more in common between the Persian garden and the Persian carpet that than meets the eye. I have been able to find seven different types of garden carpets, uh, but there could be more, you know, everybody is welcome to establish a more extensive typology. The first type 
is the real plan of the garden, like the Wagner carpet or the Chaharbach carpets that I showed you before. The second type is the chessboard carpets. In each little square, there is one kind of tree, one kind of flower, and the overall squares refer to the parterres or subdivisions or cartes of the garden. And this is an 18th century Farahan carpet. Farahan is a city between, a uh, little bit between Rome and I think Kurdistan. It's very close to Rome and the carpets there are very, very famous. And in many of these chessboard carpets, the flowers, the plants, the trees and the animals are depicted in vertical elevation. So the symmetry axis is in the middle of the carpet and you can look at it from both sides. This is an 18th century from Kurdistan. Uh, the Paziric carpet, to which I will come back later on, also has this chessboard pattern. So the third type is the medallion carpet, or what we call torange, or lachak torange. And we can say that the majority of Persian carpets have this medallion design. And it's common to many different areas in Tabriz, Esmahan, Nain, Mashat, Kerman. Symbolically, the medallion represents the central water basin of the garden. And in fact, in Azari Turk, Gol means pool, but in Farsi it means flower. Uh, the Ilgoli garden in Tabriz is actually a very large pool with a pavilion in its middle. And in this carpet dated 16th century from Tabriz, you can really see that the medallion in the center represents the pool because there are four ducks swimming in it. The fourth type is the golafshan, or millefleur carpets, where real flowers are scattered all over the carpet, like in this Esfahan, 20th century from our carpet museum. But these kind of carpets with you know, flowers scattered all over are very rare. And this is one of the most beautiful ones. Uh, it dates from the 17th century, and it's from the mausoleum of Shah Abbas II in Rome. But most of the millefleur carpets, Wolafshan, resemble this one. It's a bouquet of flowers coming from inside a vase. And this is a Bakhtiari rug from the 20th century in the Textile Museum of Clermont-Ferrand in France. So these golafshan uh, or millefleur are much more common they, and they come in small sizes because usually they are used as prayer rugs. The fifth type is the hunting scene carpet and this hunting uh, takes place in the Bach Shekarga or hunting domain gardens. And uh, this one is an Azerbaijan carpet from the 16th century in the Rockefeller collection at the Met Museum. Uh, 
This one is again a hunting scene from the Musée des Arts Décoratifs of Paris, 16th century Tabriz. Another one from Milan, dated 1552. And this one is a Kerman, 16th century in Madrid. And then we have this one from our own museum. And I think this is one of the most beautiful carpets we have in the Tehran Carpet Museum. This is why at the end I'm going to come back to this rug and we're going to look at many of its details. The sixth type is what I call the gate to paradise carpets. Usually these are much smaller carpets and they serve as prayer rugs since the gate often has the shape of a mehrab. Uh, in a mosque, the mehrab indicates the direction of Mecca towards which all prayers are to be addressed. In this extraordinary example from our Carpet Museum of Tehran, what we see beyond the gate is the cypress, which is the symbol of eternal life, both in our antique as well as our Islamic heritage, so that it is the perfect image of heaven. The rug itself becomes a window to eternity. Usually there is no perspective in the images depicted in the Persian carpet. There is no up and down, and it is symmetric in all directions and can be looked at from any angle and always gives us an ideal image of the garden. But the Mehrab prayer rugs have a definite up and down. And finally, the seventh type is the tree of life carpets, or derachte john, which depict a single tree. And of course, this Neri's carpet being one of my favorite ones, I show it twice. So uh, the cypress is very common in this tree of life. Uh, but we also have, you know, like, uh, in this Neri's, I think it's a very abstract tree. It's not a I couldn't say what kind of tree it is. And sometimes it can be even more abstract, like this one from Azerbaijan, from uh, the Lerchtepik Antique Museum in Munich, Germany. So beside the prayer rugs and the tree of life carpets, there are some other garden scenes in carpets which have a definite up and down. And this is a very, very rare example of carpets from our museum you know, in Tehran, 19th century from Tabriz, because I think it's one of the only uh, carpet designs where there is absolutely no symmetry. This, uh, you know, I haven't been able to find any other carpets with so little, absolutely no symmetry except in the margins. So the first thing we perceive in a carpet is the central design. And the last things we see are the margins. But sometimes the margins are more important than the central design. As we see here in this 18th century from Esfahan, from Shah Safi period, uh, where the carpet designer has drawn a typology of all the existing trees in the Esfahan region in the margin. The margins represent the enclosing walls of the garden. 
Zoroastrians believe that the garden should be protected by seven rings of walls so that, you know, angry man or evil wouldn't be able to penetrate in them. And therefore, in most Persian carpets, we have seven margins. One is always broader, separated by two small margins, which separate them from two medium ones, which are protect, uh, not protected, which are bordered by two smaller ones. So if you count, you know, it's seven. And uh, I think uh, in most Persian carpets, which are authentic, if you count the margins, you will come up with the number seven. There is also a very fine, you know, one or two centimeter margin finishing off all carpets. And this one, uh, this uh, Sultanabad carpet from Khorasan next to Gorgon. But, you know, this little margin doesn't count because it's like the finishing, uh, and usually it's the same color as the main background. You know, if we go back, the main background here would be navy blue, so at the end they finish it off with that sort of protective wool. And here we have another Azerbaijan, 16th century, where the main margin is very, very worked in detail. And so now we go to the Paziri carpet, which is very interesting because it seems to be made of margins only. The subdivisions of a garden into square lots, or what we call cart, is depicted in the center. And then it has only five margins. Actually, if you count the, the Paziri, it's not, you know, it's the oldest known Persian carpet, it dates from uh, the Achaemenid period, and uh, it's about 283 centimeters by 200 centimeters, and it was found under the frosted land of the Paziric Valley in Siberia. That is why it has been preserved so well. It is in the Hermitage Museum now in St. Petersburg. And it is simply the oldest known carpet, not just Persian, in the world. And so as you can see here, uh, the outer margins show the herdsmen, while the inner ones showed the animals of the herd. And so compared to the Greeks, the Persian knew how to create abstract forms from the elements of nature and were thus able to add a metaphysical dimension to the motifs they were showing. Uh, there is this capacity for abstraction, which we inherited from pre-Islamic times and which continued you know, and was even reinforced during the Islamic period uh, because human representation was not allowed. And I think this is, you know, this capacity for abstraction uh, which really differentiates Iranian arts, all Iranian arts, from the rest of the Islamic world. And it is most visible in the art of carpet design. So now I would like to end this, you know, these symbolic abstracted forms with a very significant abstract design which is totally Iranian and which has spread to the rest of the Islamic world and sometimes even 
infiltrated Western art, the Paisley patterns. Uh, it has, you know, many different interpretations. One is the bent cypress, which refers to the strength of the cypress which bends in the wind but never breaks, a symbol which is very dear to all Persians, especially to Zoroastrians. And we have still several millinery cypresses in Iran. Two of them are in Kashmir and are 3,000 years old and are reputed to have been planted by Zoroaster himself. And this one which I'm showing you is 4,500 years old. It's, uh, it, uh, Pietro de la Valle mentions it in his memoirs. So, um, you know, it's incredible to have it's Abarbu next to Yazd. And uh, so there are so many interpretations about the Paisley. So one is that it's a pine, it's a flame of fire, an almond, but Dehboda believed that it represents the wings of birds, and namely those of the Seymour. So, uh, Another interpretation that I have often heard is that, you know, the Sasanian kings used to make seals with uh, this part of their hand with the little finger, and you, if you dip it in ink and make a seal, it becomes exactly the shape of a paisley. So we also have a lot of, you know, paisley carpets, you know, either just one paisley or many. Uh, but, you know, I haven't included it as an eighth type of garden carpets. For me, you know, the paisley is just too uh, ambivalent. I don't really know which interpretation is the correct one. So having seen the garden in the carpet, we now move on to the carpet in the garden. <laughs> and we enter a garden with awe and respect. And so it is when we step on the carpet. We Iranians usually take our shoes off when we walk on a carpet. We sit on carpets, we eat on them, we lie down and sleep on them, we pray on them. In short, we live on our carpets. But most importantly, we gaze at our carpets. And I always thought that an Iranian is not really an Iranian unless she or he owned a small, you know, the smallest or humblest Persian rug. Because uh, this is one of those artifacts which give meaning to our daily life by connecting us to our glorious past. And when we enter a Persian garden, we also get, you know, this sense of well-being, as though we were reconnecting with the paradisiacal spaces we carry in our eternal archetypes. So this is a 16th century miniature from Behzad, the Herat School, Herat School from the Golestan Palace Museum. And the Persian car garden is the ideal space for picnics. And of course, there is no picnic without laying out first a carpet. In all Persian miniatures, when there is a picnic scene in a garden, there are always several carpets. And this one to me is very interesting because the carpets are not only 
laid on the ground on the earth, but some of them are also hung as curtains to separate you know, the women's spaces from the men. And again, this is a Behzad, 16th century, from the Golestan Palace Museum. So to go back to the question of picnic, there are three cultures which have the habit of laying out a cloth on the floor and eating on the ground, no matter how hard it is. The Persians, the Indians, and the Arabs. And because of the precedence of our culture, I think it was the Persians who invented the picnic. <laughs> and also invented you know, the sofre, the tablecloth that we lay on the floor. And so now I'm trying to search all Zoroastrian texts to find, you know, references to the first Persian picnics, uh, even before Sizdak Bedar, uh, which dates, of course, from Zoroastrian times. Uh, Zoroastrianism is really the most ecological religion in the world. I think it's one of the first religions, you know, which really uh, glorifies nature, respects nature, and invites us, you know, to to have that kind of respectful attitude towards nature. And so sitting on the floor to eat food and also picnicking is one way to feel very close to the earth. And so this is the subject of my new um, exhibition, inshallah. <laughs> the, this is a page from the Mu'arraqe Gulshan book, early 17th century, from uh, Golestan Palace. And in the case of royal picnics, the carpet is laid on a tacht, which is the equivalent of a wooden bench, but can also be translated as throne. The carpet I'm showing you now is not a picnic or a garden. It's a 19th century kerman from our carpet museum and it shows the coronation of Nader Shah. But I find it very interesting because if you look closely, everything in this little scene is made of carpets. Not only the tah, but even the uh, legs of the, be of the you know, bed are covered with rugs. You, know. uh, you see carpets within carpets. You know, there's the front carpet, back carpet, the back of the uh, throne is also a carpet. And this reminded me a lot of uh, this Van Eyck painting where there is a mirror showing a second image of the painting which we are seeing. So I found it a very interesting, you know, carpet scene. Uh, two of the main activities taking place in the, car in the garden are playing music and of course listening to it, and also reciting poetry and listening to it. Uh, smoking opium is also a favorite pastime, finding its ideal setting. This is the Dolat Abad garden. Uh, it's a Rajar photography that I found in the Gulistan Palace Museum uh, photo albums of Nasreddin Shah. And uh, I think, you know, 
it's just you know one of those perfect activities of the Persian garden. Uh, and in general, the Persian garden is very conducive to hedonism, just as heaven promises to be you know the place of all pleasures. And uh, this mobile miniature shows Homayun's birthday feast. It is dated 1590 from the British Library. And uh, so the Persian garden is the ideal place for deriving pleasures. So it provides the best scenery for eating and therefore also for cooking. And I think that this is one of the best miniatures for showing cooking in the, in the wilderness. Uh, it's from the Khamse of Amir Khosro, dated 1575 from Shiraz, from the Bodleian Library. We have special rituals for picking up fruit and eating them in the garden. For instance, we lay down our watermelons in the water canals where the water is really cool. So the water canals are used as a natural refrigerator. And uh, we, we have this uh, wild mulberry toot and it's impossible to pick it up so because they're so fragile. So we lay down a huge piece of canvas or some kind of tent material, sometimes even a women's vase. So maybe, you know, there is, because in Farsi, chador means tent as well as veil. So I don't know if it came from this ceremony, but uh, this is typically Persian. And uh, the picking up of pistachios is very interesting also. I don't know how they do it in uh, California, but in Iran, um, pistachios have to be dipped in hot boiling water for just one minute so that the leafy skin comes off and they open up a little so that they can be eaten. And. Um, one of the stories that uh, Iraj Afshar told me about Nasreddin Shah's habits of how he would eat al-balu, sour cherries, is just incredible. His cook would prepare a boiling pan of caramel and walk around the garden behind the king and the king would pick up the, uh, the sour cherries, dip them in the caramel and then eat them. And I think, uh, you know, this is Nasreddin Shah's garden, the Sahib Harani garden. It's uh, still very much in existence today. It's uh, now Nyavaran's public park. So although the Persian carpet is ubiquitous in the Persian garden, once it is laid out, its importance wanes compared to the garden itself. And the most important activity in the Persian garden is contemplation. We lay on the carpet and we watch the water flow in the canals and listen to the music of the water. Water is the subject of the Persian garden. The display of water is the most important element of uh, the Persian garden. So therefore there are many technical, you know, um, feast for making the water seem much more voluminous than it really is. 
and its movement is very important. There is a mystic dimension to flowing water, which makes it comparable to the passage of life. Uh, whereas stagnant water is supposed to be dirty and not appropriate for ablutions. Stagnant water is depressing and has a connotation of death. And that is why even in the large basins, the water always circulates. It comes in from one canal, it goes into another canal. And what differentiates the Persian garden from all other oriental or western gardens is that it is that the water is always flowing. And uh, we don't have ponds in it, we don't have, you know, pools. Uh, the water simply has to be flowing. And as Hafez says, you know, Benshin sit by the stream and see life pass by. And uh, this is the Bavishai's day in Mahan. I'm sorry, I don't have a better slide, but uh, you get a feeling how, you know, this garden in the middle of the desert is watered by a Hanat, which comes, you know, 70 kilometers up from the mountain to this garden. And uh, if I were to summarize what the Persian garden is in a few words, th this is what I would say. The Persian garden is the gift of a small stream, either above or under the ground, which on its way to irrigate arable lands, lingers for a while in a garden for a moment of human enchantment. You know, water is so scarce. This is now the water coming out from the Shazde garden. You know, it comes from up north into it. And here, sorry, here it goes out. You know, it's not wasted. It has just been lingering for a very small while. Water is always kept underground most of the time. And uh, so now this is an image of the Dolatabad garden, which I really love, because uh, once you're inside and you're gazing at the garden, you know, you have these specially framed views of the garden, uh, which I think, you know, transport you to, you know, other places. And I think the same thing happens when we gaze at beautiful Persian carpets. And the scale is not important. It can be a small 100 square meter courtyard, like this Godal Bakhche of the Pirnia house in Naini. Or it can be, you know, this is my roof garden. And we can produce the atmosphere. This again is in the Dolatabad garden. You can produce the atmosphere of a Persian garden just by laying down a small rug on a wooden bench. Uh, the rug itself is like a miniature garden. And uh, of all the activities taking place in the Persian garden, of course, the most important one is love. Persian garden is the ideal space for love. And I would like to end this talk by going back to this uh, hunting scene carpet, which we have 
in our own museum, fortunately. And um, so you can see how the drawings are, I mean, not the weaving is, uh, the images which are depicted are so naive, you know, you can see now the cypress tree, the little pond, and then the two fishes in the pond. And this is a very important, uh, again, um, abstracted figure, the two fishes which intertwine like this. We call them Mahidharham. And, you know, Tabriz is the most famous city for this kind of uh, carpets, Mahidharham. They're very, very expensive, very uh, tightly woven. And then we can see the tigers are hunting the deers. Uh, here the lambs are being attacked by the hogs. The eagles are hunting the deers. And the lions are hunting the cows. And in the bottom of the carpet, we can see some Chinese influence. Uh, you can see the dragon or the Chinese chi, you know, these two blue things. Uh, and then there are some rabbits running. Nobody's attacking the rabbits. So I don't know what, you know, what's, something must have been magical about rabbits. And then in the margins, uh, we see various birds, you know, parrots, which again connotates some Indian influence. So I hope I have been able to give you a glimpse of the special relation which exists between garbage and gardens and carpets, and in general the special relationship that we Iranians have with nature. Thank you.